0: So, Jay, you know all the weird cyclops stuff, right? I'm not sure any single person knows all the weird cyclops stuff, Miles. But I at least know a disproportionate volume of weird cyclops stuff. Okay, so does the weird cyclops stuff you know include
1: the black bug room? It does. Excellent. What's the
0: deal with the black bug room? That is an excellent question. And as with the bulk of weird cyclops stuff, there are actually a few possible answers. Do tell. Okay, so you've got to remember, the bulk of what we nominally know about the Black Bug Room comes from Cassandra Nova. Uh, That's Charles Xavier's twin, right? Yeah, the one he killed in utero. Anyway, in New X-Men 116, Cassandra Nova gets Cyclops out of a fight by mentally sticking him in the Black Bug Room, and she tells him two things. First, that everyone has a Black Bug Room, and second, that this, the one where she leaves him, is his.
1: So we all have creepy caves full of gigantic bugs in our
0: heads. Maybe. Because the thing is, we only ever see Cyclops' black bug room, and it only ever comes up in context of Cassandra Nova. First, in New X-Men, when she takes the X-Men out, and then in Astonishing X-Men number 14, when Emma Frost, who's acting under Cassandra's influence, drags Cyclops there again. And that leaves three possibilities. First, that the Black Bug Room is exactly what Cassandra Nova says it is, that everyone has one, and the one we see in Cyclops' mind is, in fact, his. The second possibility is that the Black Bug Room is actually a place in Cyclops' mind, but it's not a universal phenomenon. And the third possibility is that the Black Bug Room is just something Cassandra Nova created whole cloth. Whoa. Okay,
1: uh, which do you think it is?
0: I have no idea, and there's really no strong textual evidence in one direction or the other, which, honestly, I kind of love. I mean, the ambiguity makes the whole concept so much weirder and creepier. It's
1: already pretty weird. I mean, the idea that everyone might have a dark cave in their head, occupied only by a
0: tribunal of giant bugs? Oh, You don't know that that's what yours would look like. I mean, if everyone has their own. Okay, point. And anyway, Cyclopses is is not only occupied by a tribunal of giant bugs, there's stuff hanging on the wall. Ah, oh, jeez. Are we talking, like, human viscera or something? Oh, no, it's nothing that clichéd. Then what? Tiny top hats. What? I'm Jay Edidin, And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode number 210 of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And guess what? We're not going to, well, okay, we, I am right now by saying it, but um, we're not going to exhort you to come to FlameCon because as you listen to this, if you're there, you're there.
1: Exactly. And if you're here, listening to us, where you are and where this version of time-displaced us are is... The big one. The big 90s crossover. The one we've been waiting for. Fatal Attractions? No, the other big 90s crossover.
0: Ah, the Phalanx Covenant. Uh,
1: no, no, not that one. Age of Apocalypse already? Okay, so point, there are a lot of 90s crossovers, but... I kid, I kid. I know that we're actually doing Executioner's Song. We are. And to remind everyone, you would think you would call it Executioner's Song, which sounds kind of poetic and cool. No, it is spelled X-Cutioner's Song. No relation, as we mentioned in a cold open recently, to the Executioner character. Either of them. Either of them. Oh, X-Men. It's a forced
0: title, but I don't know, for me that kind of makes it fit. I guess. So... I want to talk a little bit about this crossover before we dive in, because you talk about this as kind of the signature 90s crossover, and I think this, this crossover gets a lot of fairly deserved flack, but I really sincerely and unironically love it.
1: Yeah, I mean, we super enjoy all of the tangly continuity, all of the nods back to single little panels from decades before, how everything fits into one giant confusing self-contradictory tapestry... And this is exactly that.
0: It's also got some of those great crescendo moments where all of the fractions, you know, separated, scattered teams come back together, um, you know, working together for a common cause, which I love. It's got tons of Summer's family nonsense, which is great. It's sweeping. It's dramatic. It's silly, but it's a really sincere kind of silly. It's, It's not... You know, the kind of sort of callow, just-there-for-the-show flashiness that we kind of associate derogatorily with the 90s. It's it's flashy. It's flashy as hell. There are swirling capes and declamation everywhere. But it's really heartfelt in that. It totally is. And I think what we're seeing here
1: is, strangely enough, in the middle of this gigantic 12-part event, we're seeing writers actually writing X-Men for the first time in a long time, now that the image exodus has finally completed, we're seeing them get their feet wet by, I don't know, putting on concrete shoes and diving into the Marianas Trench. I mean, this is a trial by, well, it ruins the metaphor, trial by fire, which metaphorically is like diving into water, and it totally works, because don't stop and think about the details, because it's the 90s and everything is awesome.
0: Do you think Strife can swim in his
1: armor? I mean, he's, if the fins are articulated, he could use them to propel himself along. He'd be very
0: graceful, like a metal-bladed dolphin. All I can think of now is this: the scene where um, they're talking about the poodle cuts in Best in Show. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. Talking about how those little uh, fur bits act as Those flippers. act as paddles. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. All right, so— Other things about this crossover. Now, we mentioned it was a 12-part crossover. It's structured very much like Extinction Agenda from the year prior was, which is to say you go from one book to the next to the next, and it cycles until the chapters are all complete. So in this case, it's Uncanny X-Men, then X-Factor, then X-Men, then X-Force, repeat, repeat.
0: So it's technically structured like Extinction Agenda, but we've got a few more titles in play now than we did then, don't we?
1: We do, yeah. We had three titles then, now we have four, we had nine parts then, now we have twelve. This is a lot.
0: Yeah, I one book doesn't seem like it's that much more, but when you break down how it affects an event like this, that's a significant difference.
1: In fact, once we get to the Phalanx Covenant, we'll see the X-Office realize that this is a little too unwieldy. That'll be a crossover event divided into multiple mini-crossover events, because X-Men... Oh my gosh... <laughs> speaking of Because X-Men and speaking of crossover events, you know what you need for a good crossover? You need a gimmick. What's our gimmick this time, Jay? Tap dancing? I mean... Murder.
0: Stripe? Technoorganic viruses. Oh, oh, a publication gimmick. Trading cards. We have trading cards this time. We do
1: indeed. Every single issue cost a little bit more, coincidentally, I'm sure, and came in a sealed plastic bag with its own trading card. Each chapter had a trading card to go with it. Each trading card was also labeled as either Hunter or Prey, based on Strife's evaluation of the character or characters in question.
0: Now, We're going to get to Strife's specific evaluations of characters after the entire crossover. We're going to sit down, we're going to take a close look at the amazing, amazing document that we have come to call Strife's Burn Book, which um, you're going to have to wait a while for because this is a long crossover. But trust us that Strife has been judging the hell out of everyone around him and taking detailed notes.
1: And we get mini versions of that on these cards. So part one comes with Charles Xavier. Xavier is prey. Part two is Caliban. He's a hunter. Part three is Apocalypse, who, interestingly, is Prey. We'll get to that.
0: And part four is Cable, who, perhaps even more surprisingly than Apocalypse, is likewise Prey. But what readers knew about these characters going in is pretty substantial. We're building on a lot of continuity. So I think before we actually dive into the event proper, we should do a little bit of recapping. um, Give the significant details. Miles, would you like to do the honors?
1: Previously on Fucking Everything...
0: A couple of years ago, the mysterious grizzled soldier cabled took over the new mutants, transforming them from prospective junior X-Men to the paramilitary yelling and leaping aficionados X-Force. So,
1: who is this mysterious soldier from the future? Well, we know he's a time traveler, a cyborg, and that he has a sentient AI named Professor— That probably has nothing at all to do with the fact that in their last mission, the original X-Factor, that's the original five X-Men, had to send Cyclops' son, Nathan Christopher, into the future, along with their AI, named Chip, to be saved, after Nathan Christopher was infected with a techno-organic virus
0: by apocalypse. What Cable also has is a villainous doppelganger. That is Strife. Strife is an excessively armored mutant terrorist and Cable's nemesis. No one knows why he looks exactly like Cable, or what the two men have in common, aside from their remarkably similar faces. But we're going to find out pretty soon. Who else is on Team Evil, Miles? Well, the other X-Men big bad, since Magneto is out of the picture,
1: are... Apocalypse. Apocalypse, of course, is an ancient robot-looking blue mutant guy with weird fish lips who believes that only the strong should
0: survive. Apocalypse
1: was killed in that X-Factor story we just mentioned.
0: The one where baby Nathan Christopher got sent into the future. Finally, on team villain, well, team nebulous villain this story, and we'll get to that soon, is Mr. Sinister, a super glam Evil geneticist obsessed with Cyclops and Jean Grey to the extent that he actually cloned Jean when she appeared to be dead.
1: Now, there's lots more backstory, but most of that will show up in the events themselves. So let's talk about who our heroes are. We had three villains, and we have approximately infinity heroes. Let's start with the X-Men.
0: The X-Men are currently operating out of the rebuilt X-Mansion under Professor Xavier, who has divided them into two teams. The
1: blue team, and the much-better-selling team, I would assume, is Cyclops, Wolverine, Rogue, Gambit, Beast, Psylocke, and, like the letter Y as a vowel, sometimes Jubilee.
0: The gold team is populated by Storm, Jean Grey, Archangel, Iceman, Colossus, and, most recently, additional heavily-armed time-traveler, Bishop.
1: We also have X-Factor,
0: no, not the original five X-Men we just mentioned, a completely unrelated
1: team. This team works for the government and has the government liaison, Dr. Valerie Cooper.
0: X-Factor is currently led by Havoc, and on the team with him are Polaris, Wolf, Spain, Strong Guy, Multiple Man, and Quicksilver. Now, those are the teams working at least nominally on one side of the law. On the other side is X-Force, former New Mutants, now a group of outlaws hunted by S.H.I.E.L.D., They were led
1: by Cable, but Cable got separated from his team due to some explosions, appropriately enough, in X-Force. So remaining, we have Cannonball, Boom Boom, Sunspot, Richter, Shatterstar,
0: Warpath, Feral, and Siren. Which brings us to the beginning of Executioner's Song. We're going to be talking about the first third of the crossover today, the first four issues. And it starts with Uncanny X-Men number 294, Overture.
1: This issue is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Brandon Peterson, and inked by Terry Austin. And we're going to see a variety of different creative teams in this crossover, just like we did in Extinction Agenda. Interestingly enough, though, we'll see the same writer on two of the books, Fabian Nasieza, writes one of the X-Men books and writes X-Force.
0: And the art manages to have a fairly cohesive feel, even with artists working in a number of different styles. Again, we'll talk about that as we go. So the news of the day as this grand event opens, Lila Shaney,
1: hey, we love her, is holding a diversity-focused Unity concert in Central Park. Now, this concept will reach its logical conclusion in the X-Men 92 series from a few years back when she hosts Lila Palooza. Alternate universe, but I don't care. I love that event.
0: And everyone is turning out for it. Um, Not only the main characters, but our favorite supporting cast as Archangel, um, who's got an image inducer to give him his original appearance, um, shows up in a limo to escort his on and off again on again off again girlfriend charlotte jones who is shocked to discover that her blue boyfriend is in fact a white dude
1: right uh and he's totally smooth being his way through this in the limo it's glorious
0: okay it amazes me that she's shocked that he's white because i feel like blue or no warren worthington the third is the whitest white man in the universe second maybe after after bobby drake
1: the whitest mutants you know i love that show Bishop and Rogue are already at the concert. They're sniping at each other about security versus chilling out at the park. Guess who's in favor of each one? And I love their look. Like, Bishop is in civilian clothing, like these camo pants, a tank top, a baseball cap, and tiny, tiny shades. But fucking Rogue? Jay, how would you describe what Rogue is wearing? It's a lot of look. It is. It's a lot of spandex look. It's a full-body red and white and yellow spandex outfit. I actually thought she was supposed to be a Genosian Mutate at first because that's kind of what their outfits look like. But no, I think it was just the early 90s and decisions were made.
0: You know, I feel like when, when you're Rogue, what what should Rogue wear is sort of the equivalent of where does an 800-pound gorilla sleeps. I mean, are you going to tell her that it's off-style? No, she's Rogue. This was also somewhere
1: around the year, maybe a little bit after, when I wore a neon green and black fanny pack, like a bandolier, across my chest and carried a bunch of Tootsie Roll wrappers in it because I heard a rumor that at the skating rink, if you turned in a lot of them, they would give you free candy.
0: You made some choices there, buddy.
1: Hey man, it was the early 90s. We all did what we had to.
0: Anyway, speaking of people who did what they had to in the early 90s, um, Gambit is is reforging old, old, lost connections. He is catching up with Storm, who he used to be super tight with, and, and neither of them is really happy with the other. Um, Gambit's pretty f- hurt that she didn't come to him or talk to him when Forge left, and Storm points out that, yeah, and Gambit never mentioned that he fucking had a wife. Right. Also, Gambit's been
1: kind of a dick about Bishop, which, to be fair, I don't fully blame him for. Bishop is challenging. Bishop was definitely a dick first in that one. True, true. Nonetheless, uh, Gambit does pull Storm into a super suave waltz as Lila starts playing her rock music. And she's like, "What? this is the wrong dance. He's like, baby, it's the only dance I know. I do love Gambit. Like when he's not being super, super creepy, he's got this self-conscious, self-aware charm that I appreciate. And when he's with Storm, that's very much the case.
0: And even the the folks who aren't there in person are are watching the show on TV. Um, it's on pay per view, and X Factor, who is is currently in New York because they've been dealing with the expatriates, um, all piles into Guido's fancy hotel s- suite to check out the concert on TV. Lila herself is having pre show jitters backstage, so
1: I guess we're doing things in a little bit altered order, as you might imagine. We we do that frequently. She's talking to Charles Xavier. She's wondering, is her audience really ready for a message like the one that she
0: wants to deliver? Not at all, Lila. But if mankind waited for the right time to address the winds of change, it's unlikely we'd ever have crawled from the primordial ooze.
1: I love a lot of things about Executioner's Song. One of the things I love is that I think it contains one of the better portrayals of Charles Xavier in this entire era. Charles Xavier is genuinely inspirational around here. He's a good person who makes you want to be a good person. And to be fair, he's going to spend most of the crossover completely sidelined. But I think having him come on strong as a good guy that we sympathize with and that we care about is a damn fine move.
0: We should add that the reason he's there backstage and talking to Lila is that she has asked him to speak at Lila Palooza, that he's he's going to be giving a talk about mutant human unity. And that's really, really important.
1: Yeah, as is the point he's making, which is that discomfort is where growth happens. Good call, Chuck.
0: Oh, well, I meant that it's narratively important, but that too. Both of those things. Meanwhile. Meanwhile, at everyone's favorite ex-dive bar, Harry's Hideaway, Cyclops and Gene have a moment of tension when Gene catches Cyclops daydreaming about how hot Psylocke is. He diffuses it by pointing out that, yes, there are other attractive people in the world, but Gene is the one he's with, so... Cyclops kinda makes a good point. Although, I gotta say,
1: this whole cyclops flirtation thing has not even been going on for all that long. I am already so freaking sick of it. It has always felt so forced.
0: It's super weird and awkward.
1: Right? But there's not much time for awkwardness, because as Cyclops sweeps Jean into a reconciliatory kiss, all of a sudden, one of the flat surfaces that makes up Harry's hideaway bursts open, and someone comes through. Wait, who do we know that makes their own doors? X-Factor? But Scott and Jean were X-Factor. Is is it Angel? No, nor is it Iceman, nor is it Beast. You know who else was on X-Factor, very briefly? Not Boom Boom. It's Caliban! Caliban, the former Morlock who cursed his own weakness that left him unable to defend his people during the Mutant Massacre, who joined X-Factor, trying to find a way to save his people, and who eventually... Went to Apocalypse saying, hey, can you suit me up? I never want to be weak again. So sure enough, this is Caliban, now gigantic and muscly, now Apocalypse's horseman of death, even though Apocalypse himself done got deathed.
0: And man, he has the second best entrance line in this event, I think. Oh, true love. I hate true love. I made Valentine's out of that panel once.
1: So good. But yeah, Cyclops points out, okay, Caliban, bro, Apocalypse, your boss is dead. Why are you still doing shit for him? Also, you were on X-Factor. We were friends. What, What the hell, man? But Caliban says, nah, they never really were friends. They never even paid attention to him. They never even asked Caliban his real name. They just called him by his created Morlock name. This doesn't really jive, though, because when Caliban first appeared in Uncanny 148, Caliban points out that it was his father who named him Caliban, specifically
0: because he looked like a monster. Does he say that his father named him Caliban, or just that his father named him for a monster? Because his father might have named him for a different monster. Oh man,
1: it turns out Caliban's real name is actually Grendel's mother. Aww. That's uh, one word, by the way, no spacing, no hyphens. So, that big fight's going on, But peaceful things are going on elsewhere during this very eventful concert time.
0: Right. Iceman and Colossus are skipping Lila Palooza. Instead, they are shopping and talking about Opal's departure and Mikhail's apparent suicide.
1: I really love that we see so many less common interactions in this story. Like, Iceman and Colossus are both on X-Men Gold, sure. But before the big 91 relaunch, like, they didn't hang out much at all. Iceman was off the team throughout the entire All-New All-Different era, and then he was on X-Factor while Colossus was on X-Men. I love that it's really giving us this feel of this one gigantic mutant family. It almost feels like, you know, when you're in college or when you're in high school and you get thrown into a random class or detention or community service or whatever— whatever with a student you see around all the time
0: but you never really talk to and it turns out you have a whole lot in common god i'm I'm imagining the dorm dynamics in the x mansion right now but uh unfortunately colossus and iceman don't get much downtime because they see a news report about the attack on the pub and they they go to head over to try to help scott and gene but suddenly they're waylaid by two more horsemen war and famine these are these are the three surviving horsemen by the way um Julie Power had killed Pestilence and Fall of the Mutants, because remember, really dark stories always involve the Power Pack.
1: They generally do. Now, Iceman and Colossus are able to subdue War and Famine, but Scott and Jean are gone. Caliban has spirited them away to question mark?
0: Other villains are at work as well. Back at Palooza, below the stage, two jerks are setting up the classic big bundle of dynamite with a timer sort of wily e. Coyote-style, they're planning to blow up Professor X, but Cable is there to stop them, not only to stop them, but to shoot them with a huge gun that reduces them to skeletons, like Carter Riking style
1: I love that. I love that that's an early 90s thing, that if you shoot somebody with a gun that's powerful enough, they're just skeletons, and the rest is immediately burned away. Bones are very tough in the Marvel Universe, even if you're not Logan.
0: Now, we've already seen one kind of baffling attack... This is where we see the tip of our second mystery. Apparently, Cable stops these guys not to save the professor, but because he, Cable, has dibs on killing Xavier.
1: Xavier, meanwhile, is up there speechifying his heart out. And this is more of the Charles Xavier from the early 90s that I really genuinely appreciate.
0: And this is a long speech, so maybe we shouldn't do—we'll we'll put it all in the in the visual companion. But for now, I think we're, we're just going to give you a couple excerpts this concert is about embracing our uniqueness the color of a man's skin the choice of whom we love the right for your neighbor to pursue his individual religious observance isn't it also about learning to respect the person born with a torso fin cursed with an optic blast or blessed with the natural power of telekinesis seeing past their differences Humans and mutants share a common, unbreakable bond. No amount of words of derision, distrust, or disinformation can change the truth that each of us—man, woman, black, Hispanic, Jew, Asian, Native American, homosexual, mutant— everyone, underneath all the words, we are all related. We are all family.
1: I love this. And the crowd, unfortunately, does not— They're being bigoted jerks and start throwing things and talking about how no, mutants are freaks, everybody else is okay, but mutants totally suck. But Xavier keeps speaking through it because he knows, like he said before, there's no right time to change people's
0: minds, you just gotta try to do it. Well, he keeps speaking through most of it because what finally cuts him off is Cable standing up in the crowd, pulling out a gun, and shooting Charles Xavier in the chest before body sliding away.
1: And what I love about this scene is that there's a horizontal panel with Xavier being blown backward in his chair with this big explosive impact in his chest. It's very, very similar to one of the first scenes we ever see when Rachel Summers comes to Earth-616. Oh, shit, you're right. Yeah, when she talks about what happened to Xavier in her time when he was executed, as it turned out, by uh, law enforcement or the military, as I recall. Mm -hmm. But it's the same shot. And that's what I love about comics that have time travel in them. That's what I love about dark futures. You always have to wonder, oh, is this the moment where it starts turning into that dark future? Even if it doesn't lead directly to it because the history doesn't line up, is this the moment where the future gets that kind of dark?
0: And the great thing about this crossover is, again, we've got so many time travelers involved, so many double crosses, and, you know, I think we can all be pretty sure that this is strife because that's been revealed by now, but there's still so much we don't know going in That that's an entirely plausible scenario at this point in the story. The X-Men are able to rush Charles Xavier to the hospital. Meanwhile, another group of people is perhaps the most shocked. um, And that is X-Force, who have rigged up a makeshift TV to watch the concert at Camp Verde.
1: And it starts out all lighthearted and fun, like Boom Boom is super annoyed and jealous because Cannonball is all excited to see his I-thought-she-teleported-into-the-sun girlfriend Lila.
0: Right? I mean, I feel like
1: excitement is justified here. I know, because the last time Sam saw her was during that spider storyline, right? The one where she teleported into the sun. And
0: then they see their current mentor, Cable, stand up and shoot their first mentor, Charles Xavier, and disappear.
1: So that's fucked up. And I love the caption that closes this first issue as they all look dumbfounded and horrified at the television.
0: The sound kicks out. The silence is deafening. Yet, if they listened closely, these mutants... Indeed, every mutant on the face of the earth... Might hear the faint strands of music just beyond the horizon. The Executioner's Song has begun.
1: The Executioner's Song as a title for this story... I'm not going to say it fully makes sense, but I am going to say when you use prose that neon purple, it is fucking effective. Jay, listening to you read that, like, I've read the story a billion times. It still gave me chills. It's just, it's got so much resonance. I care so much about these characters and about their reactions to things. I fucking love X-Men and I fucking love comics.
0: Aww. that brings us to the second chapter or the second movement of Executioner's Song. That is X-Factor 84 titled Tough Love. It's written by Peter David, penciled by Jay Lee and inked by Al Milgram. Lee and Milgram in combo. Um, Lee is kind of the outlier of, of this group stylistically, but Jay Lee and Al Milgram together have a sort of craggy Jim Lee meets Mike Mignola vibe going, and it works really well, and it fits just well enough with the surrounding styles of artwork that it doesn't really stick out awkwardly. Yeah, it's a hell of a shift
1: going from Larry Strowman to Jay Lee, but I dig it. No,
0: no. Again, I think I think Jay Lee is is just fluid enough and just flexible enough to really bridge that gap as well. Like he lands somewhere between Strowman and the sort of Jim Lee knockoff everything else, um, and he's got this this great sort of sort of moody feel. Um, I need to double check who the colorist is on this, but that's that's a huge uh, uh, factor in this X Factor issue as well. Yup. So, where do we open, post-tragedy? Well, we open with the most logical place to go after someone is shot, which is the hospital. Um, Nick Xavier is brought there, followed closely by the X-Men, and as it happens, X-Factor is already there because of Taylor, and that's the Genosian Mutate who was beaten in Central Park at the end of X-Factor number 83, and boy, is this an awkward reunion. Right. Because the last time most of these people saw havoc,
1: that was in the Extinction Agenda when he was a brainwashed Genosian magistrate.
0: And Storm, the current leader of Gold Team, was one of the brainwashed mutates working under him. So when they run into each other, it's... yeah. Aurora? Alex? Wish it could have been under better circumstances. Seeing you, I mean. I know what you meant. Ah, um, who's, who's your friend?
1: What I like about this is, yeah, there's all the history of the Extinction Agenda, but they were also on a team together in the Outback era for a long time. In fact, Havoc was the one that we thought for a while actually killed Storm accidentally. There's just all these different layers of history, both positive and negative, behind all of these characters. And so seeing them crammed together, as contrived as it is to make it happen for a crossover,
0: is fucking cool. Also, they're lucky enough to have Bishop to diffuse the awkwardness. Because the thing is, no matter how awkward your casual conversation is... Bishop's contributions to it will be awkwarder and will make you feel relatively comparatively at ease. Yup. And there's also the fact that Charles Xavier, who was kind of
1: like the center of mutant everything, he's comatose right now. He's out of the picture. And so there are all these people not really understanding what the structure of things is anymore. And so we have these different leaders like Storm and Havoc butting heads a little bit. That makes the whole heroes fighting heroes all the time a little bit more believable, and I appreciate that this crossover finds a way to make that work.
0: Heroes don't actually do a ton of fighting heroes in this crossover. There's one line along which they do it, but otherwise they mostly just sort of work together a little uncomfortably. And all of them in fact are frantic for something to do. So Alex sends Rain and Guido off to investigate the bandstand where the professor was shot, which brings them into in fact just said conflict because that is also exactly where X-Force is headed in hopes to either exonerate or track down Cable.
1: Yeah, and this is fucking great because this is the first time that Wolf Spain has seen all of these characters. She's seen Cannonball briefly before in X-Factor, but this is the first time she's seen richter and rain and richter were dating back before everything went to shit in the extinction agenda and it's so
0: goddamn heartwarming to see them together again Uh, rain agrees and there are some very enthusiastic makeouts before it becomes clear that this is not going to end well no one quite trusts anyone else rain won't leave x factor for the for x force none of the new mutants on x force will come over to the other side and that means that it's time for a big pointless fight
1: and this is so fucking sad because you can see the conflict in Rain's face. That's something that Jay Lee gets across very well, even when she's looking all werewolfy. These are her people, this is her family. She spent years growing up with so many of the people who are now on X Force, but she literally can't leave Havoc. She's genetically bonded to him. Everyone assumes she's just in love, but no, she doesn't really have a choice in the matter. And just seeing her pulled in both
0: directions like that is so tragic. But that's not the only pulling happening. Strong Guy pulls Feral's tail. Shatterstar kicks Strong Guy's face. Rain mauls Feral. Quicksilver shows up just in time to steal one of Shatterstar's swords with Havoc. Polaris and multiple men not far behind. Finally, Cannonball makes an executive call, swoops Boom Boom up, and carries her to the ship straight past, well, straight through, um, her previous fight partner, Jamie Madrox, to Boom Boom's intense consternation. Smooth move, Sam. You just made five more of him. Don't matter. X-Force, we are leaving! But we can take these guys!
1: No, we can't. We've been lucky so far. But inside of another minute, they're going to
0: clobber us. We're getting while the getting is good. Sam is a really, really good team leader, and we're seeing him, in really, in this in this crossover, we're seeing him come into his own as a strategist, which is great. Um, now... Havoc still manages to blast X-Force's ship on the way out, meaning it'll leave a trail that can be followed, and the X-Men Blue Team shows up to help.
1: Heroes fighting heroes, heroes teaming up with heroes, heroes going out dancing with heroes,
0: heroes doing careful poetic studies of other heroes. Heroes gradually dying in hospital beds, where Professor X has taken a steep turn for the worse to the point that the Doctor suggests that he be allowed to return home so he can die in his own bed. God damn. Well, it's a good thing things aren't terrible elsewhere. Oh, they totally are.
1: Because elsewhere, the Horsemen of Apocalypse drop off Scott and Jean with their boss.
0: Now, you would think, based on the name Horseman of Apocalypse, that their boss is Apocalypse. And indeed, we are expected to believe that initially, too.
1: Until he steps into the light and reveals.
0: What a sinister turn of events this is. Eh? Hey? Uh, I just want to take a moment to respect how goddamn amazingly committed this ridiculous, ridiculous son of a bitch is to being the most extra person in any given room and possibly universe. Like, he, he stepped out to reveal himself while smirking at his own stupid pun about his name.
1: Mr. Sinister, now and forever, we salute you. Seriously, like, anyone with that kind of flair for the dramatic, I just want them around all the time, even if they do terrible things.
0: This, you can click over to the visual companion to see it, but he's also just got this terrific smirk. Like, you can tell that he knows exactly what he's doing, and he's so pleased with himself.
1: I still remember back in the day when we were first trying to figure out, like, how Sinister was supposed to sound, and that was the thing we settled on first, is that he should always be so pleased with himself. He should always be enjoying every syllable of everything he said.
0: Yeah, he is... I was gonna say he's arguably the smuggest person in the Marvel Universe, but I think Namor could probably give him a run for his money on that.
1: That takes us into Chapter 3 in X-Men Volume 2, Number 14, Fingers on the Triggers. This is written by Fabian Nasieza, penciled by Andy Hubert, and inked by Mark Pennington. I really like Andy Hubert. For me, he is like the definitive post-Image Exodus X-Men artist. It's some of Jim Lee's style, but it's a little more detailed, still very clean and stark. He's a lot of fun, and I think he just gets better and better.
0: Yeah, I really like Hubert, and it's really fun getting to watch him evolve through this era. I think this might be his first issue.
1: So, in this first issue of Cubert's, despite Beast and Moira McTaggart, who has teleconferenced in, doing their damnedest, Xavier is dying. The techno organic virus that apparently was in the contents of the bullet he was shot with by Not Cable is taking
0: over his entire body. Whoops. So, it's time to split up and. Try to figure out what to do, X-Factor and Blue Team will go look for Cable, and Beast will join Gold Team and Quicksilver to see if Apocalypse could be back, since his horsemen are, and to see if he can find Cyclops and Jean. And I love this because we have the previously
1: blue-gold-divided members of the original five X-Men, of the original X-Factor, teaming up to save the two of them that have been kidnapped because Apocalypse was their villain. It's
0: working in all these little bits of history, one after another after another. And Bishop, for his part, declares that he is going to stay at the mansion and protect Xavier, um, which, which tends to be his job, I guess, until the end of Messiah Complex when he shoots Xavier in the head. I mean, he got a lot of
1: experience watching people attempt to shoot Xavier, so when he did it, he was very good at it.
0: In Panama, Sinister hands the unconscious Cyclops and Jean off to Reaper and Forearm of the Mutant Liberation Front, who trade him a very fancy techno capsule of some sort from Strife.
1: And I love that Sinister... You know, he's kidnapped Scott and Jean by manipulating the Horsemen of Apocalypse, but before he put them in the big sort of uh, vacuum-sealed, stay-fresh capsule things that they're in, he apparently also, A, had copies of their superhero costumes, and B, dressed them in those superhero costumes. I don't
0: know if that's just creepy or efficient or both or what. Either way, it is the least surprising thing that takes place in this. Like, obviously Sinister has those sitting around, and obviously he just goes ahead and does that.
1: But you know what surprises me? Sinister is the one behind the mutant massacre, right? Like, he tried to kill all the Morlocks, including the sewer wizard, Healer, who we already know when he heals somebody, when they're unconscious, he also dresses them up in a different costume. Sinister and the sewer wizard are like kindred spirits.
0: Well, that or the mutant massacre was actually triggered by difference in fashion opinions. That could be, that could be. Well, Sinister doesn't
1: stick around for too long, his role in this crossover is just about over, and he exits, as he does everything, dramatically. Good riddance to you all, for I
0: have received the better end of this bargain by far. I now have a piece of the future, and with it I shall shake the ever-shifting foundations of mutant kind forevermore.
1: The trade that just happened is unclear. We'll eventually figure out that Sinister thought he was getting the DNA of Strife, who he thought was the son of Scott and Gene, so he could figure out how his genetic obsession with them played out in the future.
0: Time travel makes for awesome science. It really does not. Um, But the Dark Riders, um, and these are not the same as the Horsemen of Apocalypse. These are Apocalypse's cult, previously known as the Riders on the Storm are watching Apocalypse be reborn. Um, they are. They have done this. They have. They have brought Apocalypse back early because someone is running around pretending to be him, and we know that that someone is sinister. But neither Apocalypse nor his scions are yet aware.
1: Now, the Dark Riders, as you said, Jay, previously the Riders of the Storm, they were in that X-Factor Endgame story, the one where Nathan Christopher got sent into the future. Their Hard Drive, Gauntlet, Barrage, Foxbat, Synapse, Tusk, their individual identities really don't matter here. There's just a bunch of monstery people that kind of worship Apocalypse, or at least what he stands
0: for. Now, it appeared at the end of that event, that um, X-Factor 68, that Cyclops had killed Apocalypse, but nah, you really can't.
1: It turns out Apocalypse regenerates when he dies. He just gets better, kind of like Sauron. Do you think maybe a drunk vagrant stumbled into this Egyptian pyramid and that's what it took to wake Apocalypse up?
0: I'm going to go with yes. It is too soon.
1: Why has Apocalypse been awakened in an unfinished state of organic coherence? My powers are not complete. I am not yet fit to be revived.
0: He hasn't even put on his face yet
1: right? So that's going to be a whole thing. But the heroes, meanwhile,
0: are going around heroing at rapid speeds. Right. We've got the combined blue team and X-Factor flying out to find X-Force. They can track them now because Cable's gone. Cable can't cloak them anymore. And also because Havoc has knocked out a chunk of their ship, which is now emitting traceable, you know, pollution. Yeah. and, And these are kids who they've all known, Forever, Like, they've, they've, they've watched these kids grow up as new mutants, and they're having a really hard time with the idea that now they've got to hunt them down.
1: Polaris wonders what the hell happened.
0: I wonder how the soldiers could let the general turn them this cold, this hard. To which Wolverine responds.
1: Maybe it ain't Cable that turned them this way, darling. Maybe it's just the way of the world that did it. Maybe the dream is dead. Maybe we should all stop pretending it ain't and accept the fact we're living in a nightmare.
0: See, that's what happens when they put you in too many books.
1: Right, you just get bitter. But, Logan, I feel that way sometimes, too. But we've
0: gotta hold true. Tomorrow could be a brighter day. It reminds me of that Onion headline, what was it? A video game protagonist wonders why heartless God always chooses to continue. <laughs>
1: right, it was all about Metal Gear Solid 2, but it totally yeah. applies to so many things. So, these good guys land to confront our other good guys x-force and x-force is fucking ready for them or at least all of x-force that's here because one member is still
0: missing that's right we haven't seen cable the real cable at all cable not only was not the one who shot xavier cable isn't even on earth he is hanging out in space on Greymalkin, his his orbital base um following an 11 month bender in the future after the events of cable blood and metal now that he's passed his hangover, um, the professor, that's uh, Gray Malkin's onboard AI, is catching Cable up on current events. Namely, that Charles Xavier was just shot and possibly killed at a Lila Cheney concert. And Cable is shocked because Cable comes from the future. Cable knows what's supposed to happen and this isn't it. This never happened. Professor, who did this? Who shot Xavier? Well... Regardless of the illogical nature of the evidence presented, Nathan, it would appear… that you did.
1: What? Well, back at the mansion, Bishop is still guarding Professor Xavier's slowly degenerating body, and apparently the way he's doing this is by just pointing his gun at random trees and stuff in the yard, which, you know what, I fully buy that that would be Lucas Bishop style. In a universe with mystique, you can never really be too careful. Good point. So, Jubilee in her jammies brings Bishop coffee, which is goddamn adorable, and even causes him to briefly stop being a total dick.
0: Yeah, I assume that Bishop just runs on caffeine and intensity all the time. Unfortunately, he lets his guard down just long enough for a perimeter breach, which would have happened anyway, because it's Sinister and we know Sinister can get through anything. And on his way in, Sinister has managed to capture two hostages, Val Cooper and Stevie Hunter. Hey, Stevie Hunter, the New mutant soul dance instructor, she's back. The last time we saw her was back
1: before the Muir Island saga. She was attacked by a Shadow King-possessed colossus. I guess that all worked out. We never really saw what happened in between, because continuity is a little dicey around these times.
0: But speaking of continuity, that brings us to X-Force number 16, Jack Lighting. It's written by Fabian Niseza, with pencils by Greg Capullo, inks by Harry Candelario, colors by Joe Rosas, and letters by Chris Iliopoulos. So after a very brief standoff, the blue team of the X-Men, X-Factor, and X-Force all fight. And the fight is precipitated by Farrell, who attacks preemptively because she claims that she can smell that the other guys are about to attack, and I am pretty sure that's not how it actually works. Once again, we have character interactions we haven't seen very much
1: in a while. Siren talks about how, hey, Multiple Man, we used to be buds back in Fallen Angels. But as we learned in X-Factor, that wasn't the real Multiple Man. That wasn't Multiple Man Prime. That was a
0: dupe who went evil, and that makes me sad. Also, Shatterstar calls Wolverine Lord Wolverine, which is pretty funny. And Naseez's dramatic captions throughout this are really a delight. But anyway, everyone fights and fights and fights and fights fights, and X-Force finally flees. But Wolverine... ...is on their trail. They're hiding somewhere in the woods round this creek.
1: That's a hunting ground out there. And I'm... ...the Hunter.
0: Uh, actually, Logan technically Stevie is the Hunter. But either way, Logan tracks them quickly enough, and after yet another much shorter fight... ...the X-Men round up X-Force and somewhat reluctantly drag them back into the Blackbird. And...
1: ...that's basically the end of most of X-Factor in this crossover. They're mostly gonna be the X-Men's prisoners for the rest of the event... Once things are worked out after that, their days as outlaws are going to be over. The Liefeld era is also going to be over. This right here marks the the full transformation of X-Force into its own thing. We saw the beginnings of that when Richter and Sunspot came back. I feel like this is where it really hits. Yeah,
0: this is its last excessively muscled gasp. Meanwhile, Gold Team plus Quicksilver are looking for Scott and Jean. They trace... Apocalypse's horseman to a warehouse off Chesapeake Bay where they find art murder, but not—no, that's—I'm sorry, I was thinking of Hannibal. No, they find famine and death, and they take those two out fairly easily.
1: But they find a transmitter stuck in the ice around here, uh, after the icy battle, that produces a gigantic goddamn hologram of Mr. Sinister being all sorts of dramatacular.
0: If this is being seen, then I assume the horsemen have been defeated, and the X-Men have advanced to the next level of the game. Do not be overly upset by my machinations, children of Xavier, but it was I who abducted your friends, and now my part in this mad game concludes. But do not allow my participation to deter you from your original goal, for Apocalypse unbeknownst even to him, is still the cause of this madness, and therefore, a means to an end.
1: Deliciously done, Mr. Sinister.
0: Also basically nonsense. Well, yeah, as long as it sounds cool, it doesn't matter what the content is. Again, this is the early 90s. The actual Sinister is, of course, back at the mansion holding Val and Stevie hostage. Bishop who gives no fucks, of course shoots Sinister anyway straight through the head, and Sinister is just fine, but there is a great panel of him grinning like a fiend with a huge hole through his head. Yeah, it is
1: totally Terminator 2, and it is totally awesome. I love Sinister just not giving a shit about this. Like, he's actually enjoying everyone's reactions at this surprise. That is totally Nathaniel Essex. That's the thing. He's a glam villain, he's a self-satisfied villain, but he's also a genuinely terrifying villain.
0: And how into the performance of it he is can distract from that, but sometimes it can really emphasize it as it does here. You know, you said Terminator 2. For me, what it looks like is claymation.
1: Yeah, yeah, that sort of level of artificiality, of unreality.
0: Now, Sinister claims that he is here to help, Um, specifically that he's here to help save Xavier and maybe find Scott and Jean. So where are Scott and Jean anyway? Why, they're on the moon, of course. But they're not going to find that out and readers aren't going to find that out for a while yet. All they know is that they wake up in uniform in the custody of a dude they have never met before. Fortunately, this gentleman went to Apocalypse's Academy for Dramatic Villainy, so he knows how to introduce himself properly.
1: Allow me to introduce myself, X-Men. I am Strife, the Crown Prince of mutant kind, and you, the King and Queen of what is to come. Father, Mother welcome to the end of tomorrow
0: and as he says this his cape is billowing dramatically and i got to imagine that in the same way that most of the most of cable's telekinesis is occupied with keeping his t-o virus at bay strife's telekinesis is largely occupied with keeping his cape billowy and dramatic but not catching on his very pointy armor
1: and speaking of cable and impracticality good fucking lord cable is in his uh, safe house in switzerland to get ready for the coming conflict and how does cable get ready for a conflict why with all of the goddamn guns and pouches and capsules and everything in the motherfucking world
0: yeah um we we see at least the switzerland based portion of cable's gun collection at this point and it is Everything you might dream it to be and more seriously. this is the, what the fuck cable? What is even wrong with you, man? Dude's got like 10 fucking guns that he's all carrying at once. This is the most cable panel
1: I have ever seen of cable.
0: No, no, this is the second most cable panel, because the, the most cable panel is the last one of this page, which I had been waiting for, because I know it's one of Chris Sims's all-time favorite panels, and it is, in fact, absolutely goddamn hilarious, because it's cable carrying like 12 enormous guns, just encrusted with pouches, and he is saying...
1: Only one person can be responsible for all of it. It's time to take him down once and for all, man to man, and quite literally
0: face to
1: face.
0: Get it? Get it? It's because they have the exact same face. I get it. I totally get it. And I... Love it. This is amazing. This is like peak cable. It's like watching a wonder of nature. Like, it has gone beyond construction and sort of taken on a life of its own as some sort of weird embodiment of of something.
1: Of something. Nathan Summers, we salute you. Shine on, you crazy, heavily armed diamond.
0: And with that exhortation, the first third of Executioner's Song is over, and- You've got questions.
1: Sam asks on Tumblr, has there ever been an explanation for Hope Summers' connection to the Phoenix Force beyond the fact that she has red hair? Did we find out who her birth parents were at some point and I missed
0: it? So, for those of you unfamiliar with Hope, she was the first mutant baby born after the Scarlet Witch's No More Mutants decree after House of M. And whether her birth and her mutation was triggered by the Phoenix Force or attracted the Phoenix Force's attention has never been firmly established. However... As far as we know, Hope did in fact have two perfectly ordinary human parents, although at least the one of them who was around for her birth is dead by now. Her mother was Louise Spalding, and Louise Spalding was the captain of the Cooperstown Alaska Fire Department. What we know about her is that she was a badass, and also that she had no interest in settling down with Hope's father, whose identity remains a mystery, and will no doubt end up being revealed in some kind of horrifically contrived retcon somewhere down the line. But for now, the red hair is just a coincidence. John Vinalas asks on Twitter, how would you guys like to see the X-Men integrated into the MCU now that Disney has acquired Fox's cinematic IP?
1: Oh, man. So everybody's been talking about how cool it's going to be to see, like, Captain America fight Wolverine or whatever, but I keep coming back to the same thing in terms of my own opinion.
0: So, first of all, obviously we follow different people because the things that I've been seeing people talk about how cool it would be to watch Captain America do with Wolverine um, aren't really fighting. <laughs> Well, that aside, although, I mean, maybe they'd be
1: more in favor of that, I don't know. I don't think the X-Men Cinematic Universe should be integrated into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think the feel is way too different. And not just because, you know, the X-Men movies came out at a time where superhero movies were just starting to find their footing, and they're still very self-serious and didn't really work in, you know, color as a concept until recently. But just because in a world where mutants existed... All the stuff with all of these heroes rising from different directions surprising everyone in the Marvel Cinematic Universe wouldn't make any goddamn sense. And similarly, when we have all of these characters, all of these heroes from different worlds with different origins for their powers, mutants wouldn't have the same impact. You can get away with this in a comic book universe where things cross over some, but the franchises mostly kind of do their own thing. I don't think you could in a movie universe. That said, the Fantastic Four are coming over with those rights, Fantastic Four would totally fit the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I would love to see the Fantastic Four finally done right on screen, I would love to see Doctor Doom finally revert himself in the third person and talk about how he's a master of science and sorcery and runs his own country, seriously, how have they fucked up Doctor Doom so many times? I know, he's just the easiest character to get right. Right? So other ways they could do it, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could, like, reboot the X-Men cinematic universe with younger characters. I think a reboot wouldn't be the worst thing, as much as I like the kids who were in X-Men Apocalypse and will presumably be in X-Men Dark Phoenix if it ever comes out.
0: Yeah, I think a reboot would be what you'd have to do, and I've been thinking about it, and I think you'd have to have kind of the X-Men in their own corner of the universe. The best way to integrate it with the existing stuff would be, at most, as cameos and tiny bits of background. Right, because otherwise you get the thing like from
1: Spider-Man Homecoming, and as much as I love that movie, I didn't like this part, where Spider-Man is sort of subservient to the much more experienced Iron Man. I think if you had all of the mutants subservient to all of the Avengers, that would kind of suck. I guess you could also just say, oh, so that thing with the Inhumans, actually they were mutants. Maybe that was the same thing, but that would just be super awkward. What I think we should do... Do what Al Collins suggested in her awesome four-part article way back in the day on Comics Alliance, where she cast characters from different movies, and do four X-Men movies, each from a different era, totally standing alone, maybe allude occasionally to Marvel Cinematic Universe stuff, and that's it.
0: We should say she still does casting articles there now at sci-fi.com, but we'll link both to those and to the original um, Comics Alliance column that we mentioned in the companion to this episode.
1: Now, we are a completely listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's hear from the angry
0: Claremontian narrator. You thought you were safe in the future, El Bryant-o. You thought you knew what events would unfold, and that you would remain comfortably insulated from the past. Too bad Rachel had other ideas, and too bad you weren't smart enough to see them coming. And with that, I am handing the mic and, uh, the Mr. Sinister identity for now. Over to Miles.
1: The Mutant's Liberation Front. Well, you're no nasty boys, but we all have our flaws. And what I have is a pair of unconscious and freshly costumed mutants in whom your master seems quite interested. Will the dimensional portals contained within the eyes of Philip Flores help Strife better fit his helmet through doorways? Will Gabriel Rodriguez's tendency toward auto-resurrection help mitigate Strife's tendency toward failure? It doesn't matter, of course. I already have what I need from Philip and Gabriel. And the future, indeed, looks sinister.
0: And with that... Jay and Miles explain The X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode.
1: Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, stay ad-free, and occasionally hear your name being thanked by, you know, the Claremontian narrator or Mr. Sinister... Check out the Patreon link at the top of ExplainTheXMen.com.
0: Thanks to everyone who came to see us at FlameCon. That live episode will be up after the Executioner's Song concludes. Um, Next week, meanwhile, Charles Xavier will continue to fight for his life. As Strife's revenge plans get extra weird. And Executioner's Song continues.